0: God has made a city of refuge. Sanctuary city where we can go to find mercy. It's it's interesting. In the midst of this series through Joshua, which is about our stepping into this new Christian life, a Christian life as we step into it, and yet is not perfect. We do not measure up. We will fall short. In fact, Romans 3 tells us that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I I remember an old... um, an old liturgical thing we would we would say in 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 church when I was growing up that we have sinned against God in what we have done and in what we have left undone, the things that we didn 't do that we should have done, I fall short i don 't measure up, and i when i don 't measure up sometimes what i didn 't do, my carelessness has an impact on somebody else and God in the midst of his people stepping into and inhabiting and building new homes and chopping down trees. Let's say a guy, for instance, is chopping down a tree. One of the examples given in the, in the law where this city of refuge is described, and in the midst of that, the, the, head, the head flies off of his axe and strikes somebody else in the, in the head and kills them, and they fall down dead. Unlike Daisy the cow, they don't make it. What is that guy going to do? Well, as was normal in the time, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, a life for a life. Somebody in that person's family, the one who had died, some, a near relative in their family would now become an avenger. Who would now take this person's life who had caused the death of their relative. It was a blood or a relative avenger. And that was normal. It wasn't just Israel society where that happened. That was normal practice all around the world at that time. That when someone has taken the life of someone in your family, that death must be avenged. Their honor and the honor of the family is upheld by requiring justice for one's life. And one of the things that that practice teaches us is life is inherently valuable. It has its own intrinsic value. Every life is precious. And cannot merely be bought off or paid for. So what would a person do? What's to be done then in the midst of this need for justice when a wrong has occurred? And especially such a grievous wrong. And yet it wasn't intended. It wasn't premeditated mercy. Well, God has provided in his word a place where justice meets mercy. A place, where, a place where I can go to find refuge when I need it because of my guilt when I couldn't measure up. And we're going to find that in the Christian life. I've drawn parallels in this book of Joshua between the Christian life that we live in and Israel's experience in the Old Testament. They are stepping into, bit by bit, taking new ground in their inheritance. We are doing that. We are gaining new ground. We are taking steps forward in our spiritual life talked about that last week from in Ephesians 4.28. Taking steps from the one who stole, steals no longer, but rather let him work with his own hands to provide so that he not only provides for himself, second step, but another step further, more like Christ, he might give to those others who have needs. So from one who takes from others to one who provides and works to actually give of what he has to others who have need. Those are steps in the Christian life that we step into. Ephesians unpacks that over and over again in different ways, different areas. But as we do that, we will still find ourselves like Paul, as he describes in Romans 7, that he keeps discovering himself that the things that he wants to do, he does not do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, this new life of Christ in him that wants him to live new, and yet he still finds himself living old, and the things that he 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 would not do, these he still finds himself doing. Sometimes I turn around and I look right behind me, and there he is, old Bob. It's like, what are you still doing here? What are you still following me around for? Why are you still here? I want to live new. I want to be different. And yet sometimes old me is still right there. Is that just me or is that you too? Can I identify with that? What do I do still? So there's this thing, as we live in, as we step into this new life, this new inheritance, there's still this unexpected, unintended guilt that all of a sudden, wham, there it is again. What do I do with it? Where do I go with it? God has provided a place where his justice, his righteousness meets with his mercy. There's a line out of Psalm 85, verse 10. It talks about where God's justice and mercy have kissed. That God's righteousness and yet his mercy and forgiveness, they come together. And that place where justice and mercy kiss, I think, is found at the cross of Calvary. That's where our guilt is gone but justice has been fully exercised on another who pays an infinite debt in my place and in your place and all of our place in his death for us so that in the midst of our sin, mercy can reign and grace is poured out, undeserved favor. It's said that God's grace in our salvation is his undeserved favor toward us and God's mercy is our equally undeserved the equally undeserved withholding of the judgment or the consequences that should fall upon us. This passage just before us this morning, chapter 20 and 21, are uh, intro- introduced the last bit of inheritance in the land. And this, was, this is not the large sections as each family tribal group is given. But this last section is for the family clan, the tribe of the Levites, the sons of Levi. This is the priestly family. And instead of giving one section where the priestly people would all be clustered off by themselves, God has done something differently. He wanted there to still be 12, and so he took Joseph's family, split them in half, and we had Manasseh and Ephraim. So that Levi would not be one of the 12. Levi instead would be sprinkled all through the twelve. Chapter 21 actually is the reason that I'm wearing these pants today. These are, you know what kind of pants these are? Levi's, oh, I led you right into it. You couldn't miss that one, right? And I bet if I took a show of hands, all around the room, people would say, yeah, I wear Levi's. Some of you would say, just, I never wear Levi's. Okay, that's fine. We're not going to get into that. But but uh, sprinkled all across the landscape here, there are Levi's. Well, where did that come from? A guy named Levi Strauss. That's a Jewish name. And uh, I don't know if he's descended from or simply remembering the family, the tribe, the priestly line of Levi, who they themselves were sprinkled all through Israel. Let me show you a map of Israel. Here it is, the map of Israel. And there you see again those tribal inheritances, the family groups, each family clan is given responsibility. You take this part of the land. You advance in this part of the land. You're responsible for this section. There's nothing for Levi. But Levi would be given cities. There are six of them shown there. Those are six of the cities that the family of Levi, the priestly tribe, was given. They were given a total of 48. And they were sprinkled all over so that nobody in Israel lived more than 10 miles from one of the Levitical cities, so that so that the tribe of Levi being being scattered all through the people of Israel, and especially more of these cities were found on the frontiers, the edge of the areas that Israel presently occupied, so that they would make known the ways of God to Jacob to teach the precepts of God to Israel, but not Israel only, they would be pressing the borders out. They would be making the ways of God known to the nations as well. And one of the things all these Levites and all these cities would do is they would be reminding people where certain of the Levitical cities called the cities of refuge were located. These were special cities. This was a special place where you could go when you needed mercy. Where can I go to find mercy? Well, God had already laid out a story, laid out a plan that would suggest some things about going to a place where mercy could be found. And he energized his particular priestly people scattered all through the society that they could let others know about that. Now, interesting enough, Peter tells us we are a priestly people. That we are, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, a priesthood to God. Even as Peter says that we are scattered abroad, we are dispersed all over. Even as the Levites were dispersed in Israel. To make known, to point toward God's way of mercy. So chapter 21, I'm a little out of order now. Chapter 21 lays out all of those 48 Levitical cities. We're not going to spend time going through each of those. We're going to spend our time in the nine verses of Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter twenty describes these sanctuary city, the place where I can go to find mercy. Let me read the first those those nine verses of Joshua chapter twenty. I think if you're using the Church Bible, the Hebrew Bible, you'll find us on page one ninety four, Joshua chapter twenty, in verse one. The Lord said to Joshua, "Say to the people of Israel." Appoint the cities of refuge, which I spoke to you through the law of Moses. This was described um, in Exodus. It was it, right at right after they left Egypt. This was described in the book of Numbers in great detail, chapter thirty-five. This was described again in Deuteronomy. So over and over, Moses laid out this pattern. When you get there, you need to establish these cities of refuge, and what they were for. Okay, so I spoke to you through Moses so that, verse 3, the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, explain his case to the elders of that city. And then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment and until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled." So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kirith Arba that is in Hebron in the hill country of Judah and beyond the Jordan east of Jericho they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation so god had a plan for these city of refuge god has made a place where mercy and justice meet first of all in verse 2 well one of the things i wanted to point out right off the bat is that these 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 towns are scattered right they were scattered all over the place they were equally spread north to south on the west side of the of, of the of the um of the land and also on the east side, so everybody's within reach there is there is mercy within range it's accessible. we're going to talk about that. so God has made this place, and let me review some of the requirements, some of the particulars of the matter. First of all, in verse 2, as I spoke to Moses. I talked about that. This was laid out even before we get to Joshua. They could go back to Deuteronomy. There's the city of refuge. They could go back to the book of Numbers where Moses had told them in detail about the city of refuge and how it would work. What were the conditions of allowing somebody in for refuge and so on. As I spoke to Moses, established these cities, mercy is biblical and it comes on God's terms. Mercy comes on biblical terms, not just however anyway we think it ought to be. There is mercy from God, and it's on his terms. That's a simple point right up front. There is mercy, and it is on God's terms. We can't define it however we would define it. God has defined his mercy for us. Now, this refuge, these cities in verse 3, they are for the manslayer. This would be manslaughter, not premeditated murder. It talks about he didn't lie in wait for him. It it, it says how he didn't hate him before. He wasn't planning to kill the guy and then staged a thing to make it look like an accident. No, this was unintentional. It was an accident. It was like if I had killed the cow. I I didn't hate Daisy. I wasn't jealous of Daisy. Mom loves Daisy more than me. No, that wasn't it at all. I was careless. And in my carelessness, I could have caused a death. It would have been a cow instead of a human, fortunately, but I, I would have caused a death. And in the same way, there are careless actions that people can take, not intending for it to turn out that way, and yet it does. That doesn't, Because I didn't mean to, doesn't take away the guilt. Because I didn't mean to, still there is a demand of justice. This is not right. My, my, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, my brother my, should not have died. And yet they are dead, and now the family wants justice. but when it's, when it's manslaughter when it, and we understand in our course today, we understand there's a difference between manslaughter and premeditated murder. So that difference is understood here as well at the same time, even if sin is not intentional, it doesn't mean that sin doesn't have consequences missing the mark falling short doesn't have consequences even if I didn't mean to there are still consequences of sin one of the one of the terrible things about the pre-reformation era and since we're getting this is the 500th anniversary year of the reformation coming up in october so it doesn't hurt to talk about this one of the things that that um um, the movement gathered around. One of the things included when Martin Luther posted his theses on the on the church door was this matter of the sale of indulgences, where I could pay a certain amount toward the build, building of a wonderful cathedral back in Rome, and if I would contribute a certain amount of money, then I could purchase indulgence for some sin that I hadn't even yet committed. That sin that I was planning to commit, intending to commit, would be forgiven in advance because I had paid for it seemed like a pretty good deal well no it doesn't it's an insidious thing it's a it's a it 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 makes a mockery of god's grace and god's forgiveness as first of all that god's forgiveness can be bought at all, and secondly I can But have we been here in some way at some time, any one of us, that this is what I want to do? I know it's not right. I know that's not God's will. In fact, God's word can be very clear. My friend can look me in the eye and tell me you cannot do this thing. This is what God has said. And yet, I know, well, it is not right. It is sin, but God will forgive me, right? And dare we give ourselves permission to sin presuming on the grace of God that I can sin because God will forgive. That's a dangerous place to be. It's interesting, the sacrifices in the Old Testament are specifically toward sin that is not intentional. That doesn't mean that if you sin intentionally there is no forgiveness in Christ for you. Doesn't mean that. But I warn you, God is not mocked that we do reap what we sow, there are consequences to our choices that, that we don't know how those are, are going to play out. And That God will discipline us for our good and require our presumption from us. So this clearly makes that distinction that this is for unintentional sin and it's a warning to us not to presume upon God's abundant grace and mercy. At the same time, we know that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, all guilt. I need God's full and complete forgiveness. And yet, I dare not presume upon it. Okay, the cities of refuge did not ignore law. They didn't ignore justice. They didn't say, ah, well, God's law doesn't apply here as long as the person's in the city. No, it actually preserved, it provided a place of refuge so that justice could be fully heard. It provided a shelter from that overflow, that emotional wrath at front that says, we're going to kill the guy and a mob maybe forms and there's a place of safety that the person can run to. They provide a shelter until justice can be rightly determined. And one must come to seek that mercy. Mercy is not automatic. A person could sit at home and say, wait a minute, there's a law. There's a law. I remember hearing about it somewhere in Deuteronomy. Didn't Moses say that a person in a situation like me? Yes, Moses said, you better go to the place of mercy. And that included standing at the city gate and telling your story. Confessing what you have done. This is the thing that I did. I forgot to give Daisy water. And she died. And now I'm fleeing from my mother's wrath. Well, it wasn't like that in this story. But that's where it hits home to me. Because I still remember that. But, but there's the confession of I did wrong here. Somebody else was hurt because of my neglect, because of my wrong, because of my sin. And that confession is what opens the gate into the city for refuge, for mercy. And there within that city he's safe from the manslayer until the congregation can make a judgment together concerning his case. And it doesn't say what congregation. I was like, well, just is this, is this is this people pulled together from all of the all of the different areas of Israel? Is this a congregation from within this city? So this becomes sort of a judicial city. They always decide these cases? Or is the congregation actually from back home who know the people, who know the situation where the thing happened? Most writers um, lean toward the latter, although the scripture is not clear, but one thing that is clear, there's a jury of his peers that are going to ascertain what really happened, that it genuinely was unintentional. That judgment is made. First by the elders of the city that allow him in, and then the congregation assembles for judgment. And they say, yes, we, we affirm this was unintentional. This qualifies for refuge here in the city of refuge, and there the man must stay. He cannot go back home. There are consequences. There are, there are damages done, and there is impact from sin within this life. He must stay there. He used to be from home is here. He grew up there. You know, all of his memories were there. His extended family is all there, but now he must live here. If he has family, immediate family, they're going to have to come and move there too. They're going to resettle in this city for how long? And this is the intriguing point. In fact, there's a detail added to this description of the high priest uh, when this is all spelled out in Numbers 35. Numbers 35 makes clear in in verse 25, until the death of the current high priest, the anointed one. That's an interesting title, the anointed one, because the anointed one is the title for Jesus himself. Jesus is the Christ. Christos means the anointed one, the anointed one of God. Jesus is our high priest. The book of Hebrews makes clear, starting in chapter 2 and continuing on through chapter 10. He is our priest, our high priest after Melchizedek, who offers himself as an offering for our guilt, for our sin. Better than any of the Old Testament offerings. So Jesus fulfills all of this at a higher level. He is the high priest, the anointed one. Who dies. The person must stay in the city of refuge with this guilt hanging over them that they have refuge for until the death of the high priest, the anointed one. And then they're free. And then they're free of the guilt. Not merely because it was judged to be unintentional, but because the high priest has died and now their guilt is gone. And now they're able to move back home. Now the family can go back to the land that they're from. They can reclaim their inheritance there. They can go on with life. And the other family may resent them still. Don't know. That's a whole other forgiveness thing, isn't it? But they're free of that guilt that was hanging over them. And it would be murder now to touch him. Why? Because the high priest had died. Now, we don't know how long that takes, how long that self-imposed exile under that city of refuge is going to be. I mean, the high priest could be old. The high priest could be, as it was said of Joshua here, well-advanced in years. And he's not going to make it much longer. Or the high priest could be like me. could be young and strong and many good years left. And they might as well settle in for a while. It's unclear. Don't know how long that's going to be because it all hinges on the death of the high priest. Isn't it interesting how God threw that in there, made that there? God reveals himself to us and he uses he does that in terms one of the reasons Jesus taught in parables so much is he is he lays he lays a, 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 the truth about himself alongside experiences that touch our real lives. In fact, God even seeds our real lives with experiences that are going to lay alongside the truth concerning his son. So God sets this up. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Passover lamb, this city of refuge, and the death of the high priest. All of that is planned to say, when he comes, don't miss my son. This is what it's all about. I remember my first pastor telling me one one time, when I hear somebody teaching anywhere in the Bible and I don't hear about Jesus, I always wonder why. Because that's really the point. God is showing us himself. And Jesus is God, translated into humanity. Jesus is the best expression of God to us and for us. God who gave himself for us. And so the old, rest of the Old Testament, and Joshua as well, points toward him, our high priest, who would die to remove our guilt. Then he can go home. You see, this this city of refuge is not merely a model for sanctuary cities today and some political, social problem that we have going on. There's a lot of differences, in fact, to the story. This city is not a shelter of lawbreakers so that sin doesn't have a consequence It didn't deny the avenger's rightful claim against the person as well. This refuge was based on a national or even a a above, a supranational law, a law that was above the national law because it was God's law himself. It was not a local law based on local emotion, passion about a particular subject. That wasn't true for the rest of the land. It was a national law that was true for everybody. So you see there's some differences here. And yet, while we're still meddling around and while I'm poking a little bit at this whole sanctuary city and immigration debate that our country is in the middle of, there are children that are brought into the country illegally with their parents when they move here. And the children, certainly, they're three, they're four, they're five years old. They didn't have any say in the matter. They certainly broke... They were breaking U.S. immigration law, and yet, for themselves, certainly unintentionally. Now, the parents are breaking it intentionally, let's say, but the children are breaking it unintentionally. And now those children grow up, and what do you do with those children? This is their home. They've known it all their lives, and what are we going to do? And so there's this, that's one of the arguments that's used in our current sanctuary city. What do you do? And you've got various passions and feelings about that. As I, as I pulled you around the room, we could uncover those, and I don't want to do that because I want you to all be friends afterwards. But I will say this: it does need a real solution, a a legal and lawful solution, not a bending and temporary adjusting of the laws by. By one political power or another in office at the time, so that all of these people in this situation with guilt hanging over them are now obligated, obligated to one party or person or another based on their own their own situation hanging in the balance, there needs to be a, a ruling, controlling, legal answer to that situation rather than one that's simply one decree and then another. There needs to be a real solution here because we don't because otherwise those people caught up in the middle of that situation they are going to be left in a perpetual bondage to one party, one political force or another because their own lives hang in the balance. And that's not freedom, that's not liberty. that's being in bondage to somebody else needs a needs a solution but it's not the point of this passage the point of this passage certainly speaks to mercy and that there is a place for mercy and there is a way to there is a place that god has established for mercy in the midst of our guilt that's what the passage is about our freedom for our guilt when we have sinned comes from the death of the high priest the anointed one who has died to set us free and when we have experienced that mercy we also then need to be a place of mercy. There's something else about the com- community nature of these cities. From verse 7 to verse 9, it goes on to describe, and this city and that city and this city and that city, sprinkled all through the country in ways that would be accessible to everybody. Some Everybody's within a day's journey or so of at least one of the cities of refuge, that they can go there and they can go there quick. God's mercy is near for those who will flee to it. That's a good picture as well. God's mercy is near, and there is a place where you can go where, where others will receive you in and provide you sanctuary, provide you refuge. I think it points to the church, and I think it points to Christians. First of all, Christians. I mentioned Peter, First Peter chapter 2. We are a priesthood to God, and we are scattered, First Peter chapter 1. We are scattered in this world, and we are placed, even as 48 cities across Israel, everybody lived within 10 miles of a Levite, that God's ways, God's precepts could be explained and proclaimed to them. And that people would know as part of those precepts where mercy could be found, where where a city of refuge was, which city should they go to should the need arise. We too are scattered among people around us. There are, there are people who never come to church, but they know you. They could learn something from you about the Lord's mercy. Well, how? They never come to church. But along the way, in the midst of your conversation, in the midst of your friendly relationship with them, you are freely able to tell your story and describe in a little bit here or there. Please, they don't have three hours. But here or there, five minutes or less, something of some mercy of God that you have experienced or tasted of. That along the way, they know that you are somebody who knows about forgiveness, who knows about mercy. And along the way, there will there does come times in everyone's lives where they need mercy. There'll be an increased need and awareness of mercy or forgiveness. And if they've seen it in you, it might be, it might not be, but it might be that that's the time when they would ask you, where can I go? If we have lived out mercy and forgiveness before them in ways that when the time comes, we might be the ones to whom they say, I wish I had what you have. And then you can tell them where to go. You can point them to the place. You can point them to where God has made a provision for mercy in the midst of his justice. One of our men... Gave an example out of his own experience. He was alongside uh, another another young officer when they were in the military together. And the commander of their unit had, had wrongly blamed this other fellow officer, junior officer, of something that had gone wrong. And he put the blame on him and he singled him out and he blamed him and shamed him, not only before his peers but, for, but before other senior officers as well. It only came out a day or so later that... Indeed, this man had nothing to do with the thing that had gone wrong. And yet he'd already been publicly humiliated in a way that could definitely affect his career and future advancement. A couple of days following, he's, he's into the commander's office on other business related to a mission at hand. And he, he says to his commander, sir, I just want you to know that this thing that has happened, I forgive you. And I will never speak of it again to you or to anybody. And the man knows the damage he has done to this young officer. And he says to him, What do you mean? What are you talking about? Why would you do that? You need to defend yourself, don't you? Why would you do that? And his reply was, Because I know what it is to be forgiven. And he told me that over the next several weeks that followed, they had several opportunities to talk about this forgiveness and what he meant, I know what it is to be forgiven. That in a relationship that he didn't expect it to happen, he got to, 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 to speak clearly of his own experience of God's forgiveness in Christ because of somebody else needing to experience that mercy. Another man in our study. One of the things I like about getting together with men early on Monday morning. We're not going to do that this Monday, by the way. I've got an airport run instead. Some some people are on their way back to Africa, so um, not this Monday. It's Labor Day. But one of the things I like about that is we we, we, we try to poke around a little bit. To where what does this look like? What is? One of our guys shared how in his neighborhood, he's got a he's got a grumpy, rude neighbor. Any of you have? Grumpy, rude neighbors. I see those hands. I hope hope the neighbors aren't here this morning too. <laughs> what he does is he, he and he looks for ways that he can do something kind, something out of the way for his grumpy, rude neighbor. And he just figures that sooner or later, this is going to lead to the question, but wait a minute, why why would you do that for me? I don't even like you. Or you know that I'm 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 not nice to you. Why would you do this for me? And then he can tell, because I have received kindness from God that I did not deserve. So he's just seeding the soil, waiting for the opportunity. And we can do these things. We can be those 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 um, points of God's mercy sprinkled into, scattered among the lives of others. That's what we can do individually, but we can also do that together. These cities of refuge were accessible in Israel. We need to be a community together. As a church, I think the city of refuge applies to us, that we need to be a place that when people come here, hungry for God's mercy, will they find it among us? You know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, what would it be like? We tease this out a little bit in our group as well. What was it like to live in one of these cities? You know, somebody comes knocking at the gate, right? Got a story to tell. Oh, brother, here comes another one. Out of his own foolish carelessness, he has just made a mess of things. And now people are out to get him, and rightly so. And now he comes running here to us. And we're going to have to put him up. We're going to have to make a place for him, space that could go to our own families as they're growing. But we've got to make room for this guy because of the mess he's made out of his own life out there somewhere. This is ridiculous. Is that the way they felt? Maybe sometimes, at times. Or did they say, wow, here we go again. This guy in the mess that has happened, because he's just like all the rest of us and sin easily finds us, And rears its ugly head. And now he's in trouble and he knows it. And now this is the chance. Again in Israel. Again for everybody watching. Now is an opportunity for God's mercy to be shown. For people to see again. Look what God can do in the midst of sin and guilt. That's the kind of community I want us to be. I want us to be a community that doesn't see people who are who are desperate sinners and need to turn their lives around, but who sees people as trophies of God's grace. Look what God's grace can do in the midst of our lives if we will run to him. If we will seek out his mercy and his forgiveness and then we'll extend it. Mercy will be accessible here because our gatekeepers will say, hey, come on in. Not only welcomed into the church, not only welcomed into our Sunday gathering, but will we, will we welcome people into our own lives? It's one thing to come, and I need mercy, and I need acceptance, and I need belonging, and I need to connect, and Sarah talked to us about that. And we have opportunities in the church, not just because we're all looking for fun things to do, but because we need to connect that we would we would encourage one another. And provoke one another to love and good deeds. That we would assemble together and all the more, Hebrews 10 says, as the days get more difficult. And so, there's one thing to come and need that for one another. And then it's the next step. It's further ground gained when we will be the extenders of mercy. When we will say that what I have been freely given... What I have freely received, now I will freely extend to others. Now I will actively look to draw others into that same mercy of belonging and growing together and being built up together in God and his forgiveness. Mercy is accessible. We will take people as they are. We will invite them in. A culture of mercy that doesn't minimize guilt but that knows that Christ's mercy is bigger than any guilt that we bring with us. One of the ways that we guard our own heart is to recognize God's character, first of all, that God is a God of mercy. God built this in. That that he has shown you, O oh man, O oh woman, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, Micah 6, 8, but to do justly, to do right. God is holy and just and right but also to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And if we try to do those other two, to do justly, but sometimes I can't and I've got to love mercy because I need it for myself. And if I don't just need mercy and take mercy, but if I love mercy, it'll also overflow out of me to others who need it just as much as I do and there's humility there that bonds us together. Pride will always separate us as we compare and as we rank and stack, as we try to climb over others to lift ourselves up. Pride does that, but humility joins together arm in arm at the foot of the cross and says we desperately need our Savior. The sanctuary city was a place of refuge for stranger and for sojourner as well as for Israel. That tells me two things. That God's people need God's mercy. Ongoing, continuing, God's people need God's mercy. But not only that, the people around us, the people who are not yet counted among the redeemed, the people who who do not yet know Jesus as Savior, these are people that need God's mercy. And we're the ones that could show it to them we can show the to them how we live in it together like a city of refuge we can show it to to them as we're scattered abroad in their presence joshua 20 and 21 remind us that god has called us together here and god has sprinkled us all around the people around us Both of these, God has done that we might show his mercy to others that need it. We'll do that together. We'll do that individually. And that mercy comes. That mercy showed, that mercy extended comes out of freely given because it's been freely received. That I can give mercy to others because I have received God's mercy. I can give it over and over again because I've received it over and over again. This table reminds us of that. It's not a one-time thing. Once, long ago, August of 1982, I realized that God's mercy in Jesus was not generally for the sins of the world, but it was for mine, for my guilt. I found refuge. I received God's mercy. And I have celebrated and received and lived in that mercy over and over and over again since then. We come to this table every month. We don't do it every Sunday that we gather because we don't want it to be so often that we take it for granted. But we want it to be regular enough that it reminds us that it centers us on our worship of our lives is centered around Jesus' life given for us. We can be a people of mercy because we are a people by, through, because of his mercy. And that's what we celebrate here.